In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Do you have a favorite teacher? Most people do. Right? Someone you encountered at some point in your life that either was so positive about your instruction that you just loved them automatically, or someone that pushed you to be just a little bit better than you could thought you could be. Anybody have a name? Go ahead. Mrs. Beardsley? Mrs. Beardsley. Very great. Mr. Right? We, we have these things and they come to mind and they're and, they, they, and when we think about them, we have these very positive thoughts for the most part, right? I always feel bad for somebody who said I never had a good teacher in school because it breaks my heart. Hold on to that for just a minute. The Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they may know that I will be with you as I was with Moses. Now when we ended our Old Testament reading last week, we saw the transition between Moses and Joshua, right? And at the beginning of the book of Joshua, that continues. The first two chapters of Joshua have Joshua being ordained by God. But it's interesting. Joshua is told time and time again not to be afraid. That God is going with him. Four different times in 11 verses, God tells Joshua to be strong and to be courageous. And after that, Joshua begins to prepare to move God's people into the promised land. He organizes everything. He sends a new spy mission. It's been 40 years or so. And they add a woman of faith into the family of Jesus. And he gets God's people lined up and ready to move. And now God speaks directly to Joshua again. God wanted Joshua to know that he would be with him in the same public ways he'd been with Moses. Now the Jordan overflows all of its planks throughout the time of harvest. So when those who bore the ark had come to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped to the edge of the water. Now we have that scene that stands in the public imagination, right? With a parting of the Red Sea. The giant wall of water. We see fish swimming in it when we watch the movies, right? My favorite one is there's a, a, an image from the Prince of Egypt, that cartoon they made a few years ago, where you see a whale go swimming by as Moses and God's people are walking through. And here we see it again on a smaller scale. There's less water, but the river stops. That allows God's people to move. Now we realize that some of God's people inherit the land on the side of the river they were on, and they stay there. But they say all this is happening during the flood season. It's not like it's just a trickle at that point. Normally this is a very fast-moving river, and right now, it's not just moving fast, it's overflowing with water. While all Israel were crossing over on dry ground, the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan until the entire nation finished crossing over. Now Moses used his staff, that rod. He made it to gesture when the Red Sea was split, right? Remember the rod of Moses. Here, though, the Ark goes before them. The ark sits in the middle of the water until everyone's through. The ark was made to sit in the middle of the tabernacle or the temple. It's a visible sign that God is going to be with them. And Joshua had it, has it lead God's people by a good distance, almost three-quarters of a mile. The ark is holy, and by that I mean it's set aside to be God's throne on earth. 
No one but a priest is supposed to carry it. And they're only supposed to handle it in certain ways. And God is with them, and God's people are able to cross on dry ground. The river stopped where the ark was. And it just got drier and drier the farther everything went the other way. And just like when their grandparents and their parents, and maybe when some of them were children, they see God working to take care of them. Their leader has changed, but God's love and mercy towards his people remain the same. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. The psalm talks about God's faithfulness in all circumstances. This one was likely written at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when God's people were returning home after their time in captivity. And here they're reminding themselves in future generations that God had called them back from all over the world, from all circumstances. They talk about those wandering lost in the desert. But if we read the whole song, it would talk about prisoners who are being set free, about the sick who have been healed, even about those who were saved from a shipwreck. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Now God is at work. In each of these situations in the psalm, the pattern emerges. God's people find themselves in trouble, and they cry out to God. And then God delivers them from their trouble. No matter where they are, no matter what we feel, whether we feel we're sitting in the promised land, or whether we're, we feel we're as far away as we think we can get from God, He is there, and He wants us to return. It also says, They sowed fields and planted vineyards, and they brought in a fruitful harvest. Not only were they saved, rescued from various situations, but when they returned, God was still with them, and God was still at work. He's not only with us in our emergencies, in those times in life when we're in trouble and we call out. God is also with us every day, even when we're doing the same task we've done a thousand, a ten thousand, million times. In those everyday rhythms of life, God is still with us. Paul writes, We remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not be a burden on any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Today, Paul was what we would call a bivocational missionary. Now, this wasn't everyone's practice back then, just like what it isn't now. Bivocational missionary means they're working part-time and ministering part-time, or working full-time and ministering full-time. And full-time ministry has advantage, but so does bivocational work. And Paul here is telling the Thessalonians that he does it so that he owes them nothing, and so that they owe him nothing so that they know his motivation for preaching and for encouraging them in their faith isn't rooted in greed. That could be something that Paul's opponents could accuse him of, right? Paul's only doing it for the money. He's only doing it for the offerings. That's why he hasn't come back, because you all aren't rich enough to support him. I mean, look, he stayed in bigger cities like Athens and Corinth longer. But Paul says, no, I didn't do it for those reasons. He says this, as you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you, pleading that you lead a life worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul reminds them that he was there to be like a father to them, to love and encourage them, without any other reward needed than to see them grow into the people of God they're called to be. And Paul writes, We're constantly giving thanks to God for this, that when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, 
but as it was what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you as believers. And Paul reiterates what Paul and his companions have been telling them. Like, that like the parents they are, they're proud of how the Thessalonians have grown and matured in that situation, in what was not a normal, planned way. That they've already overcome adversity in their young faith. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, therefore do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. In our gospel this week, we picked up where we left off last week. Jesus is teaching in the temple. It's early in Holy Week. Palm Sunday is past, and Monday, Thursday is just around the corner. And we've heard over the last few weeks, Jesus answered a question about taxes and about the afterlife. And he's just explained to everyone listening that he believes the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself after he answers their question, he turns to the crowd and he calls the people asking the questions hypocrites. He says they want to sit in Moses' seat. Now over the last few weeks, few months, we've seen what that looked like. Moses was the one who brought the law down from Mount Sinai, the one who got to lead God's people out of the promised land, right? With a staff in his hand, he saw miracles. A snake, a snake from the staff, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the water out of the rock. But they seem to lack a couple of things that Moses had. Jesus said they like to tie you up with heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They didn't have compassion, something Moses had. We've heard the story from Exodus recently, where God finally gets frustrated with his people and turns to Moses. And says, listen, Moses, maybe I should just start over with you and your family. And Moses, who we know had been frustrated with God's people, turns to God and says, no, these are your people. And God shows mercy. Jesus again and again tells them that they're burdening the poor without trying to live up themselves to the standards God ordained for the priests. And they aren't doing it, so why are they looking down on anyone else? And then Jesus says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I want to read one of those funny little verses that sticks with me from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Numbers, chapter 12. It says this, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Remember in Moses' story, Moses didn't want the job. He's standing before the bush that's burning, but it's not being eaten up. And he says, God, I don't want this job. You're thinking of my brother Aaron. He's the public speaker. Moses also knew who he was serving. He wasn't doing these things to build himself up or to make himself look better. And then Jesus says some words that we need to think about this morning. He says this, But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you all are students. Now we have to go back to the beginning here. We all have teachers that have taught us wonderful things, people who have impacted our lives. Jesus here is not saying it's a sin to say there are teachers, that our earthly fathers are fathers, that we give respect and honor to those whom it's due. 
Jesus here is talking about those who are using their titles as an excuse to lord it over others. They're calling themselves rabbis so they can get other people to do the hard work. And Jesus is saying that's not the way that we should live in the kingdom of God. So how should we live? The greatest among you will be a servant, and all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now this is another one of those things that Jesus says it's very easy to say, and it's very easy to point at other people when we think they're not acting right. But it's so hard to live. This is an area where the one teaching us should be Christ. Remember a few weeks ago we heard Paul tell the Philippians that we should have that same mindset that Christ had. The one that allowed him to come to earth and live as one of us, even though the word was present at the very creation of all things with God. And because he found himself humble, he was obedient, right? To the death, even the death on the cross. Now thanks be to God, he's not calling us today to go and be humanity's savior. We already have that taken care of. But what he is calling us to do is to live in humility and to love our neighbor as ourself. Amen.